0: In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Several years ago, while I was serving a parish in St. Louis, a parishioner who was the CEO of a family-owned company came to see me wanting to share something that was deeply troubling to him he told me that his personal executive assistant, a woman that had served with him for over 32 years, had secretly been extorting money from the company. When he and many of his employees became suspicious of her actions, living large by purchasing expensive clothing and jewelry and taking lavish trips, he decided to have an outside audit done. What the auditor discovered was that over the course of many years, she had absconded with over $2 million of the company's assets. My parishioner told me that he was absolutely devastated by his finding because he had placed so much trust in her. What he did as a consequence of her actions was to fire her immediately. And he told me that his dilemma was this. What should I do now, he said. Should I contact the authorities, take her to court, try to get back all of the money that she'd stolen, which he'd never be able to do since she didn't have the money anymore, or what? In the end, he decided that because his company was doing so well and that he really didn't need the money and that he really hadn't missed the money, he would simply drop it, press no charges whatsoever, and simply leave it at that. Then he added this one line, I just hope that one day perhaps I'll be able to forgive her. Well, this morning we're about to wrestle with the most controversial story Jesus ever told. In today's gospel, Jesus tells a rather perplexing parable, an earthly, practical, real-life story like the one I just told you. Only this one is going to convey a spiritual message. It's a story about a dishonest manager who was praised by his employer, a rich landowner for his shrewdness and dishonesty. Luke is the only one who records this parable. What's also interesting is that he places it smack dab between two other very familiar parables. The parable of the prodigal son and the parable about the poor man Lazarus and the rich man. Because it falls in the midst of this context, if you were to guess that it has something to do with money and possessions, you'd be absolutely correct. The prodigal son squandered his inheritance that he received from his father, just like the dishonest manager wasted the rich man's possessions. The Greek word for squandered is the same word that's used in today's parable for the word that's translated as wasted. And then there's the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which focuses on the vast gap between the rich and the poor with a moral about how their positions will be reversed in the life that is to come. Now, none of this, none of this really helps explain the parable of the dishonest manager. Except, except for the fact that human beings respond and how they respond in moments of crisis. In each of these three stories, when the prodigal son runs out of money, when the dishonest manager finds out that he's just been fired, and when the rich man dies and goes to hell, each of them sees things that they never saw before. And each one of them does things that they never did before. And why is that? Because they've come to the end of the line. And the end always has a way of clarifying things that would otherwise stay comfortably murky as long as we think we have all the time in the world to make all the changes that we would like to make in our lives and begin to get things right. For the dishonest executive director's assistant and for the dishonest manager, the end came with their employees when the, when the, employee, when the uh, employer ordered an audit of all of his books. Both had been lining their pockets with their employer's profits. In the case of the executive assistant, the end came rather abruptly. She was fired immediately. In the case of the dishonest manager, same thing. No severance package, no unemployment benefits. However, he was given some time to turn in the account of his management. So, what does he do? He quickly comes up with a strategy because, as he himself tells us in verse 3 what shall I do since my master has taken my management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So he comes up with this brilliant solution. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. It was friends he needed, and he needed them quickly. So he devised this shrewd scheme to make some. He called on each one of his employers' debtors, one by one, And handed them their bills. Then he reduced their debts by as much as 100%. And had them write down the new accounts in their own handwriting. When the employer discovered what he'd done, what did he do? He praised him for what he had done. For his shrewdness. Verse 8. He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Good for you, he said. If you're going to play around with dirty money, at least make some friends for yourself so that you'll have some place to go when your job disappears. After all, you'll be unemployed and your bank account will be empty. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Hmm. Hmm. Let me ask you something. Is this the kind of story you want to teach your children or your grandchildren? I'm not so sure. And yet there it is in black and white, one of Jesus' most baffling and confusing sayings. What's written here in Luke chapter 16 focuses on the manager's shrewdness and the way in which he responded with dishonest quickness, ingenuity, And creativity in the face of his own impending crisis that's what we're asked to pay attention to you see the end came suddenly for him and he wasted no time in rearranging all of his priorities he used whatever resources he could still get his hands on to make sure that he would have a secure future for himself and in the end when the boom dropped, it didn't land on him. It all landed on that stack of canceled debts, written not in his own hand, but written in the handwriting of his new best friends, who, when he showed up in a couple of weeks at their doorsteps, unemployed and penniless, they would feel indebted to him and obligated to give him a job and a paycheck. How shrewd was that? Well, like it or not, there it is. That's the parable. Let me remind you that the story was told by Jesus himself. You can't ignore the fact that Jesus admired the shrewdness of this dishonest manager and wished that his own followers would imitate that same kind of quick, good sense about their own futures. Their crisis would come sooner than any one of them could imagine. Meanwhile, God's very own son was right there in the midst of them, teaching them and imploring them to repent. And to ask everyone else around them, including the Pharisees as well, to repent, to turn away from their past, and even turn away from their present way of living, and to make the necessary changes that they needed to make in their lives in order to become the people that God intended and created for them to become. Through this parable, Jesus was telling them and us, all of us, that we cannot simply live life as though we have all the time in the world to make some serious changes we need to make in the way that we live in our lives. Any day now, the accounts may be audited, and when they are, we'd better think fast, and we'd better be shrewd, ready to trade what isn't working in our lives, in terms of our behavior, our actions, and our conduct, the way we live, for what will work in our lives, namely, taking on the mind of Christ and becoming the person that he really wants us to become. Ready to exchange what won't last in life for what will last, and to do it quickly. Better yet, do it now. Do it before the crisis comes. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. When Jesus says in verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, he is by no means commending the unjust manager's unrighteous dealings, or anyone else's, for that matter. Jesus would never praise people for their sinful actions, behavior, and conduct. What we do know about God is that he is long-suffering, ever so patient with people like us, people who disobey his commandments all the time through, as we're about to say in the confession in a few minutes, through our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed. Robert Capon writes, his grace that is, God's grace, only works on those people it finds dead enough to raise. Dead in their trespasses and sins. Who also acknowledge their desperate need of a Savior and the forgiveness that he alone, through his death on the cross, can give. To receive the gift of God's grace, we must first of all acknowledge that we are in desperate need of it. There's yet another purpose. Another purpose in Jesus telling this story was to help us learn to be astute in our use of the things of this world, which he refers to as mammon. Now, mammon is an Aramaic word meaning money, wealth, and everything that we own. Jesus is really teaching us a lesson about stewardship and learning how to value our earthly possessions properly and always with a view toward the future. He's teaching us that Christians should even be more prudent than the sons of this world in the way in which they use their wealth in this world which, by the way, has no eternal value, our wealth, that is, in order to pursue those things that do have eternal value. Did you recall what we prayed in the prayer this morning, the colic, the opening line? Remember what it said? Let me refresh your memory. Grant us, O Lord, not to mind earthly things, but to love things heavenly while we are placed among things that are passing away to cleave to those things which abide. In verse 9, Jesus says, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I believe the friends that Jesus has in mind are fellow human beings that we've befriended by giving them help, help in time of need. Friends we will see one day when we go to heaven, the victims of natural disasters, wars, pandemics, refugees, the poor, the hungry, the homeless, the sick, the suffering, the thirsty, the needy, and those who know not the love and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the end, worldly matters are not the matters that really matter. Worldly matters are not the matters that really matter, are they? The most important matter for us to be mindful of is getting ready for eternity and helping others to get ready for eternity as well. There are many ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, but here in this parable, Jesus invites us to make friends by use of mammon, our money, our worldly wealth. People who will call us friends on the day of Jesus Christ in the resurrection of the dead. People like Manny Leggett a man that I knew when I served at the Star Gospel Mission, he was there for nine years out of the 17 years that I was there, and he came there as a drug addict and an alcoholic, and he'd been in prison eight times. But he came there because one day he said, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and he gave up drugs and alcohol completely. Cold turkey. Came to our services every Sunday morning at the mission, but I'm never sure of what what he was taking in. (laughs) One day I was preaching on the resurrection to eternal life, and I said to the men at the mission, I hope all of you are going to be going where I'm going. I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven, and I hope you'll be there with me. Well, after church that Sunday, he came to my office and he said, Pastor Christian, I'm not sure where I'm going. In fact, I think I might be going in the other direction than you are. And I need to know, because I want to be where you're going. So I began to share with him God's plan of salvation, how Christ took his sins and mine and the sins of the world upon himself, died for them, and offers the gift of forgiveness, how he rose again the third day for the promise and the assurance and the hope, yes, the certainty of everlasting life. And then I said, he that believes and is baptized, shall be saved. And do you know what he said to me? He said, I've never been baptized. He was 60 years old at the time. I said, well, do you want to be? He said, yes. So we marched from my office into the kitchen of the mission where I poured some warm water into a stainless steel mixing bowl. And right there in the kitchen of the mission, I baptized him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I was making a friend for eternity. A month almost to the day later, I got a call at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning from my manager, Matt Crooks. He said, we found Manny in the backyard of the mission today. He was dead, died of a stroke, but I know where he is. One biblical commentator writes, Are we using our worldly possessions in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will be glad to receive us? That's what really matters. If only we would give as much attention to our eternal souls and those of others as we give to our earthly business, our earthly priorities, our earthly wealth and possessions. Note how Jesus concludes this parable with with these poignant words. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Nowhere is faithfulness more important than in the use we make of our material possessions because what we do with our money will always reveal exactly what is in our hearts. Jesus reminds us where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The point is, we're only the managers, not the owners. What we have does not belong to us. It all belongs to God. We're using borrowed goods given to us every day by God for our temporary use and enjoyment in our temporary home. All that we are and all that we have, our gifts, our time, our talents, our skills, our ability, our intellect, and even our power, our power to earn a living. They're all purely gifts from God. Someone will no doubt disagree with me saying, well, I work hard for my money. I earned it. To which I say, yes, you did. But who is it that gave you the skills, the intellect, the ability, the human resources to earn it? God did, of course. The question is, what are you going to do with it? knowing that, as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, how we use what we have reveals what or who we serve. We can use what we have for the glory of God, or we can use what we have to serve almost any idol imaginable, any idol we choose. You see, money has that kind of power. It has the kind of power that can dominate our hearts. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. If we allow it to, materialism will inevitably enslave us. However, if we accept the fact that it all belongs to God, then we're responsible for God to the way in which we manage it. There's absolutely no middle ground here. Jesus tells us that we have to choose. It's time to make a decision. He tells us that our hearts have the capability for only one dominant love, one dominant love in our lives. If we choose to serve mammon, then it will master our lives. Jesus is asking us to bring ourselves and everything that we are, and everything that we possess, that everything that we have, under his lordship and his mastery. Just think of how many riches he gave up and left behind in heaven to become our Savior. Remember that he sacrificed himself by giving his blood to take away your sins and mine and the sins of the whole world, on the cross, which then begs the question that I just know some of you have been dying to ask, so how much then should we give to God? The answer to that question can be put in one very simple word, everything. You knew it was coming, everything. It all belongs to him. All things come of thee, we'll say in a few minutes. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. The Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that a person's true wealth consisted not in what they kept, but in what they gave away. To put that into real time, the reality is that you'll never be able to spend it all anyway. There will always be something left over and you won't be able to take it with you. A few weeks ago, I was riding out to Magnolia Cemetery with Johnny Stirr, And Johnny and I have, always have a wonderful conversation when we're on the way to the cemetery to do a funeral. But on this occasion, he said to me, Bill, I wonder, have you ever noticed none of my hearses have a ball and hitch behind them? We never take anything with us. Well, when the auditor came for my former parishioner's executive assistant and for the unjust manager in today's parable, time, time had run out. Both of them had squandered their employees' money and spent it all on themselves. Have we been squandering what God has asked us to be the managers of? Jesus said, To whom much has been given, much shall be required. So let's make some new friends. Move some money around to where it will do the most good to expand God's kingdom on this earth. The auditor hasn't come yet. Thank goodness we still have time to make the necessary changes we need to make to get all of our priorities straightened out. Thank goodness there's still time to take an accounting of all that we have and all that we are and begin to deliberately give it away with a view toward the future. And thank goodness, thank goodness we still have time to make friends that in befriending them we shall one day see in heaven. May God grant that for Jesus' sake. Amen.